Hi, I'm Max Weisbrod. I'm founder of Baton. Uh, and today on Fractionally Speaking, I'm joined by John Williams, the founder of the Sun Business Group. Um, he is a chief revenue officer, fractional chief revenue officer. And uh, also he is a revenue operations expert. Um, John, can you tell us a little bit more about what y'all do? Sure, Max. Good to be on here today. Generally, what I'm doing is I'm helping growth stage organizations and startup and scale ups kind of pull together uh, the last remaining items that they need for that particular part of their growth. And some of that can be really operationally focused. And some of it can also be, you know, strategy and making sure that, you know, doing the right things next that are most important for the growth of the organization. Um, and what kind of like, um, run rate milestones or funding milestones are we talking about when we say uh, growth stage firms? Sure, absolutely. So a lot of times, no surprise, we run into some of our initial headwinds somewhere between the $5 million ARR mark and $10 million uh, ARR mark. And a lot of those may be centered around things that could be a simple process, right? Uh, generally speaking, what we've done to get here uh, may not get us to that next uh, milestone at 10 million. And so it's really just kind of identifying and removing some of those impediments. And then in some cases, it's actually just adding in some additional process that's lightweight, not heavy, but that accommodates the need for the fact that there are more customers, there may be more products now, and it may not be quite as simple as it was initially given the fact that we are actually in growth mode. So uh, generally speaking, each customer is, has its own unique properties, but most of them, uh, unsurprisingly, fall around, you know, people, process, and technology. So we'll use technology to automate where it makes sense. So we, we may move away from, you know, uh, managing clients in uh, Google Sheets or Microsoft Excel and move into, you know, things like a CRM, which would come toward our technology piece. And then people are also super important. So we see a lot of headlines today around the importance of building your first team uh, together and that that actually provides longevity as you scale up uh, and bring more team members into the organization. Uh, unsurprisingly, you know, uh, as we as we grow and bring others in, uh, we now have a new task, which is onboarding and telling our story to, you know, a new hire. And uh, many times my clients may not have that formalized yet. So that's an example of you know, where we're pulling together a small piece of process to address people and technology. That, that enablement piece is so critical. Um, and uh, a quick aside, isn't it incredible that uh, these founders through sheer force of will are able to build like a, a $5 million business um, on the back of, of spreadsheets um, and like manual data entry? Um, so... They have it better than the abacus of the uh, of the early Roman days, uh, but it's still sheer effort, as you suggested. So, um, what what uh, does the current state uh, for these organizations look like at like this five million dollar mark? What's like what's the normal level of of dysfunction that's happening inside of an organization? I don't mean that in a negative way. I right. like. You know, there's dysfunction in every organization, but what what's what looks normal inside of one of those organizations at at that milestone that that shows them that they're ready for that next step? Gotcha, absolutely. 
I would say that it is, you know, uh, that there's this barrier of uh, you're kind of hitting the wall of being able to bring in new customers, right? So you'll hear that term tossed around of new logo acquisition and things like this. Uh, is that it's it becomes increasingly difficult to do that. Number of reasons for that happen, not the least of which is you know a, a competitive marketplace, uh, as well as you know uh, fighting for budget for other things uh, that could be within your target organization. But generally speaking, it is uh, you know we're starting to kind of see the cracks in a go-to-market strategy at this point. So if we've been able to by sheer will and a good amount of luck get to this level with our uh, go-to-market plan, it may begin falling apart for us now. And it's time to revisit that and make sure that, you know, do we have a good definition of our ICP? Are we selling to that ICP? Did we think we had a good definition of our ICP, but in reality, our customers belong to another segment. They still love us. They're paying us. Uh, so we need to go pursue those customers instead of maybe our original ICP. So it's it's really time to revisit that go-to-market strategy and make sure that you know we can accurately tell this expanding sales team, you know, what are the attributes of the new customers we're looking for? What problems are we helping them solve? And then what impact are we delivering to that organization? Uh, not just the organization, but also to the person who's responsible for delivering that impact to the organization. And in marketing speak, we call these personas, right? And so many times those personas are missing, uh, which means that we're talking to anyone who will give us time to talk to them, uh, or they may not be 100% accurate. So we spend a lot of selling and marketing time to uh, a role scope that may not have ultimately a lot of influence on saying yes to becoming a customer. So these are the things that we would typically find, you know, kind of in the front of that engagement, a customer engagement uh, at this growth level. And the second thing that we find is that as we are converting that interest into contract, uh, otherwise known as sales, right? is that we may not be doing that in the most efficient way, right? Um, it's very easy for me to say, hey, you know, try to focus your selling effort into your best candidates. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, salespeople are concerned about making quota and they want to make sure they have a sufficient amount of pipeline to achieve that. And so it's pretty much uh, not as filtered as it could be. And that means that we're spending selling time in areas where statistically, we just stand a, a lower chance of winning that opportunity. And so uh, those are the two areas where we kind of come in first and do some assessments to see, hey, are we still on target? Are we putting our limited energy and resources in the right places to produce the results we need to deliver? Well, so if I go into an organization that has like a $25, $30 million run rate, um, They've got a lot of tools and infrastructure that helps them tell what's going wrong. Um, for these uh, uh, companies who are coming to you, like this five, six million dollar mark, um, what are they doing currently to diagnose why things aren't working? Yeah, I would say it's because they're asking a lot of questions, and this could come from just some very simple 
cohort analysis and a cohort, of course, meaning a collection of clients that came in at the same time. Um, you know, we look at traditional unit economics of LTV to let us know, hey, our customers generally, when we come in and deliver impact, will stay with us for 30 to 36 months, right? If they are not, you know, if they're falling out of our client funnel prior to that, we should understand the reasons for that. It could have been that they weren't uh, an ideal client profile. It could have been that, you know, we were just unable to meet their technical needs with our solution, right? In that process, it could have meant we sold to the wrong person, right? And so uh, asking those questions and kind of just doing some simple analysis uh, is something that is very helpful. And I'll say too, let's not forget that we don't have all of the answers of a 20 or $30 million run rate yet. There's, you're right. There's a lot of data that provides, you know, clarity of the roadmap. We're still in an experimentation stage, so to speak, um, you know, when we're at 5 million. In other words, clients are still telling us what they want, and we're happy to develop those solutions for them because obviously that would enable us to grow into a larger organization. So, uh, some of our analysis that we do at this point, we do have to take uh, into consideration that, you know, there may be a few different uh, segments that could end up being functional cohorts and profitable segments uh, for our business. And so as we're starting to look at some of these, remember, we're still in experimentation mode as compared to more mature organizations. And then can we tell the story, you know, from a data perspective of, you know, these are what our, this is what our customers are telling us. This is how they're behaving. Um, how far away from, you know, where we were headed is this? And, and, you know, do we resist the temptation to pursue it or is this a valid uh, segment that we should pursue? So those are, that's some of the consternation that's happening at this stage of growth. Absolutely. One second. See, just uh, checking my notes um, and kind of thinking about where I want to go next. Um, but you're doing great; like you're you're really awesome. Um, let's see. Because you covered a lot of ground. Which is, you know, it's great. Um, let's see. So, um, so for the uh, founders who are like at this stage, right? They they feel this pain of uh, not really understanding why growth is stalled out. They know that they need somebody to come in and diagnose and fix and and restructure that. Um, what questions should they be asking, um, their potential partners, um, to, to understand if they're the right fit to solve the problems that they have? That's a great question. And maybe some recommendations that I could put forward for founders would be that you want to work with someone that you feel as though you could communicate with. So just, you know, if you're speaking with a particular candidate, and they're asking really good questions about your business. They're listening to your responses. They're following up with 
secondary and third questions and interjecting some experience uh, that's real, that they've had related to a similar issue. I think that those are all great signs, right? Um, ultimately, the uh, resource will be working with your company uh, to help you get to that next level of growth. And uh, I'll also say that at the end of the day, we're two humans that are working together. So that's why that communication is really important. You need to be able to, to receive uh, good ideas, good information, as well as, you know, how can, how can we communicate uh, bad information between each other, right? And I think that those are, those are kind of the chemical markers that indicate this would be a great fit uh, for us to not only solve the business problem, but also to enhance the culture that we're creating in this company at the same time. So I would say that communication portion is, uh, is super um, emotional versus rational. The rational part is fairly easy to get to because it's a matter of saying, hey, can you walk me through uh, another experience that you've had that was similar to this? And really, I'm more interested in learning about how you approach the thought of solving the problem um, more so than the technical details of exactly how you did it. Uh, be curious about how they did it, but I think it would be important as a founder to understand how this um, you know, temporary partner is going to work with you uh, and communicate and then actually deliver uh, the results that you need through uh, their experience. I'll say that Fractional has a unique um, place here because you immediately have access to very specific expertise. So you can specifically seek uh, someone who has experience in your growth area, in your vertical market, in your marketplace um, horizontally, and you can kind of configure to order uh, the type of experienced executive that you have. And uh, in a traditional sense, you may look at you know, a six to nine month time frame where you're out hunting for uh, that particular talent to bring them onto the first team and, you know, as a full-time employee. And I'm not saying that you don't uh, pursue that, but a fractional would allow that to happen, you know, within weeks uh, to be able to deploy that type of uh, expertise. And you could run that in parallel with your full-time search. And so it's kind of the best of both worlds there where you're able to get the expertise that you need now, uh, and then plan for, uh, you know, your strategic first team growth, uh, at the same time. So time seems like it's always the number one resource that any of us, uh, are not able to get more of. And so that time component, how quickly can we deploy this expertise is uh, super important. So you've got experience um, building out early uh, early sales teams, right? Like transitioning from a company from the founder-led sales to like their first sales team, hiring first uh, 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 sales reps, getting them trained and enabled. Um, same thing on probably the success side. Um, talked uh, a, a little bit about that in pre-meeting. And, um, you know, the, the infrastructure stuff that's gluing everything together across uh, customer touch points. Um, if 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 you're a founder at a, a five million dollar organization, how do you know if you need a a fractional chief sales officer, uh, a fractional chief uh, customer leader, a fractional chief 
um, uh, revenue leader. Um, how do you think about the 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 difference there? Like, how are you tailoring that JD? Right. I would say that you know you would have uh, a certain amount of of latent talent that's already in your organization. So, for example, if you have a really strong part, uh, product development team who's also functioning as product marketing, uh, and they have that capability to do so, right? Uh, then you're not, you're not necessarily looking to augment that street that you own, but rather you're looking for areas of where do I have gaps uh, in the functional expertise that we need right now? And that may be, as an example, that may be as a sales leader. As a founder, you're kind of functioning as the informal sales leader uh, for a time but you eventually outrun your own headlines. There's just so many places the business needs you to be of you know, higher value delivery internally. And so that's, I would say the time that you need to get an external sales leader in this example would be one where I actually need to ask someone questions like, how are we performing this month or this quarter against where we need to be? What are our major obstacles? Where are we winning? Where are we losing? Um, what opportunities are we leaving on the table because we just don't have time to get to them? And then, you know, where is help needed in the organization? Do we need a new price book? Do I need a discounting guide? Do I need better front of funnel uh, information coming in? And when you're asking those kinds of questions, it, it's it, and you don't have the answers to them, that's the sign that you may need to have some expertise and think of it as functional expertise. I need someone to be able to answer these questions for the business uh, and then also be able to kind of, you know, give me a little bit of, uh, you know, a quarter, quarter plus one, quarter plus two guidance on where we are, especially important if we have a longer sales cycle than a quarter, right? Uh, I just don't want to get a surprise every time it's a new quarter. So having someone who could own that responsibility for the business is the indicator that we probably need to have someone sit in the chair here at this point. Gotcha. Um, so now uh, shifting gears more to the, uh, you know, what it's like being a fractional um, and being a fractional executive. Um, so uh, usually people have like a long tenure before they switch in. Um, how long have you been running uh, this practice as a fractional executive? Yeah, and I would say I'm relatively new compared to a lot of my peers. So I've been doing this for three years, and I have found a lot of benefits here uh, that correlate to the work I did as a full-time uh, employee. And that is that, you know, again, you're managing uh, transformations in the business uh, constantly as it's growing, you're managing multiple projects as a full-time executive. When you're a fractional executive, it allows you really to have uh, a bit of a laser focus on resolving the specific issues in the proper order uh, that you need to. And oftentimes this is because, you know, you have the privilege of not taking on a lot of the additional uh, distractions that are present in the business, right? Um, and so by doing that, it allows you to really bring forward, um, you know, action things that need to get done. So basically long to-do lists are able to 
uh, be moved through pretty quickly uh, because you have the privilege of being able to focus in on it. Um, I've also been asked, hey, as a fractional leader, or do you feel like you're disconnected from your client's culture? And I'll say quite the opposite. In order for me to get the things done that I need to as a fractional leader, uh, I have to absolutely have persuasive skills um, you know, uh, within the organization as if I am a full-time employee. Because without that, I can't get the work done that needs to be done from everyone. And I have the benefit of being outside the organization so that, uh, gosh, and many times I, I'm the tiebreaker on something that may have been an internal logjam, uh, but because I'm not emotionally uh, invested uh, in that argument, I'm able to really approach it, you know, very stoically and, uh, and and gain agreement and acceptance and move forward from from that way. And it honestly allows everyone to just save face and get things done, you know. Absolutely. In my own in my own fractional practice, I, I I see this all the time, right? First of all, it's still really critically important to be able to pull together and hold the coalition in order to get things done. And then uh, on the other side, because you're an outsider, um, you they you're not read as being uh, like enmeshed in the politics. Uh, you're a neutral arbiter. Um, who's just bringing in outside expertise um, to try and move things forward. And I do think you have to demonstrate that with authenticity, right? Because sometimes, especially in those first few weeks, you know, there's some uncertainty about, you know, what are your motives and what's going to happen to me? Are you here to, are you the hatchet man, right? And it's like, okay, let's, you know, let's get this out in the open and let me demonstrate why I'm here and uh, connect, you know, authentically so that you have an understanding that I'm sure to help, right? So. And, and those, those, uh, the people on the ground who are doing a lot of the, the blocking and tackling, um, they have a huge number of insights um, into how the organization can improve and where the gaps are. Um, uh, how do you, how do you think about, um, the differences between the goals uh, that the you know executives um, are trying to achieve, um, and the tension between that and the uh, you know issues and pain points that the existing resources are feeling on the ground. Um, how do you manage that in order to build trust? Yeah, that's a great point. And I'll start by saying that tension is healthy in an organization because it's the opposite of complacency. Complacency will get you out of business very quickly, right? Uh, comfort is not uh, a place that you want to be early in the growth part of the organization. So you do want some tension. You want competition of ideas so that, you know, the best candidates can rise and we can act on those quickly. It's super iterative in the early growth stages, right? Let's try this. Let's try this. Let's try this. Uh, and then you land on a repeatable, consistent recipe that gets you up into 30 and $50 million, right? So as we get there, there will be some tension, and you're absolutely correct. There are many voices, um, and I'm sure that founders, uh, that is no big secret, that there are many uh, whispers in your ears uh, all throughout the day and evening. Uh, but the important point here is that we do want to draw the alignment of here's where we're headed, here's the reasons why we're headed in that direction. We are in agreement that we 
uh, would consider that to be success when we arrive at that destination. Uh, and so, you know, it's the logical argument of why are we doing the things that we're doing so that we can then measure the uh, efficacy of those ideas. This is a better idea that aligns with this direction we're traveling than this idea. It doesn't invalidate uh, the second idea. It's just that the first idea aligns more strongly. Um, and this is important because if we do have a change in direction where we're headed, that second idea may actually resurface and we may implement that idea. So I'm not going to say all ideas are great. Uh, but I'm also not going to say all ideas are bad. It just, it's a matter of timing and how well does that align right now with where we're trying to get to the next milestone. And I think kind of being forthright and forthcoming with that in a transparent way, especially in an early tight knit organization, uh, really helps people, uh, understand that and put their energies into where we're headed, uh, in contrast to. Uh, you know, maybe holding a grudge and no one listens to my ideas and, you know, just kind of uh, mentally checking out. So um, there are two things that come to mind uh, when when uh, listening to you go through this. Uh, the first is the concept of the Chesterton uh, fence, right? Um, the idea that, you know, if there's a decision that's been made in the past, um, before you undo it, you should understand the reasons behind why it was done, Right. Um, and, and like you were saying, you know, you need to communicate the why so that you also know like, Hey, if that's no longer true, we should get rid of that fence totally. too, so that we could, we could explore the other idea. Um, but, uh, the other thing that's very, uh, interesting, um, is, uh, you know, you're talking about this internal alignment earlier. You talked about enablement really, uh, you know, the training of new staff, uh, communicating of, of like, you know, how things work, all that, um, and those, those are two uh, very key parts of kind of like culture setting. Um, and what do you see uh, your like uh, place being when it comes to helping to define and iterate on uh, the culture of the, of the organizations that, that are your clients? It's a great question. And I encounter this on every client visit, right? It's that I want to make sure that I am supporting the first team and in particular, the quarterback of the first team, which is the CEO. So though, you know, that's my North star culturally within the organization, right? Is that let's get behind the first team. Let's get behind the CEO, uh, in helping to deliver, uh, the messaging of culture, the components of culture, uh, to the organization, right? Uh, I'll say that, you know, if there's something that there's a yellow flag here or maybe something amiss, this is very important to um, have a conversation with the founder or or the CEO uh, initially, right? And these are just, you know, reflective conversations. So kind of one-on-one -on -one with that founder as it relates to culture and just providing kind of some outside context uh, with uh, the intention again of being helpful and additive. Uh, once we exit out of that conversation though, that's, that's, uh, you know, we are, we are going to implement, uh, the cultural direction that's been established. I think that that is uh, part and parcel of the lifeblood of a successful organization. And we can debate whether 
the decision was the correct cultural decision or not uh, later. But ultimately, that is uh, so important for us to all be unified on and behind because ultimately, uh, all of the client-facing assets in our organization will intimate that culture to our customer. And that's what we want that customer experience to feel like is that they're working with an organization that's you know, focused on creating the impact and standing behind that and doing the things that need to be done to make sure that that happens. So that Amazon uh, principle of uh, disagree and commit, um, which I've I've absolutely leaned upon in, in the in the in past engagements. Um, so. Um, one of the uh, key issues that uh, a lot of fractional um, executives uh, deal with um, is, uh, you know, really like lead generation um, and, and pipeline. Um, uh, so when you're thinking about like that, you know, those first like five uh, uh, deals that you were able to to pull in, what do you think uh, were like, what was what was key to making that happen? Uh, what's like your advice to people who are in the early stage? What a, what a great question. And I can share with you my experience that uh, I was unable to get my first clients just simply from my own brand, right? That was just really, uh, really tough. And the way that I got into uh, the community and, and as an operator practitioner, in this way as a fractional was through uh, other organizations. And what I mean by that is uh, Advise Well was one of those where, you know, there's a small group of executive members that service a particular niche of clients. And I was invited to join them on client engagement and perform a specific role uh, in there that had to do with sales and revenue operations, right? And then from there, uh, that experience then led to another uh, client assignment, uh, which led to a referral outside of AdviseWell with another organization similar to AdviseWell, where it was a group of executives helping growth organizations get past their unique hurdles uh, that they had. Uh, until finally last year, I was able to get my first on my own client. So. I would say that um, the aspects here are obviously your network is uh, something that you will continue to develop and invest in uh, every day, just like a garden. But I also would like for others like me to consider looking for um, groups of professionals, small groups uh, you know, that need your particular expertise uh, for a specific client engagement. So be open to working with other groups uh, when you're facing clients, and then that will help you accelerate building your pipeline and also building your referral database. I imagine that at some point, uh, it would seem reasonable to have three to six clients per year, uh, given that the engagements typically are you know, six to nine months, um, and you'll have some overlap. Again, fractional means you may not be working exclusively with one client, uh, but rather a few days out of the week. And so uh, ultimately, you know, your pipeline doesn't have to be huge uh, because your 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 uh, customer set is, is relatively low, but you do have to make sure that you're using the most of your network and 
Um, so consider these other advisory groups or consulting groups as uh, partners uh, and, and, uh, and as an additive for your direct sales efforts. Um, so uh, there, there are quite a few people who have said uh, similar things, right? Um, that uh, it's, it's these um, relatively uh, umbrella group um, professional services organizations um, who uh, have a proven method for pulling in top of funnel and uh, clear customer trust um, uh, who are doing uh, some layer of, of initial vetting um, uh, and, and pulling in uh, people into their network. And one of the great things about being fractional is it is contract, right? right? Um, and the way that these these uh, umbrella organizations are structured is also you know leveraging the fact that people are basically 1099s. Um, right. so they have uh, an incentive um, to keep a full roster um, of potential partners who have proven expertise. Um, and it makes so much sense. Uh, to to you know give uh, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's right um, in, in order to uh, collaborate with them and not have to worry so much about like the very very top of funnel top of funnel um, and and more get to focus on you know conversations with people who are in market for what you're trying to do yes. You know, and it's it's the it's the dual uh, sided coin of being a specialist, right? Is that you know, yes, you're very special, which narrows down your uh, total addressable market. Uh, but it's also what makes you highly sought after. Uh, I would say that it has not been my experience that my clients are looking to hire a generalist. Uh, my clients are looking for very specific remedies. Uh, very specific business cases over a very well-defined amount of time, right? So uh, I think that these things come together uh, very well. Uh, Hollywood did a great job of doing this with, uh, you know, a, a movie set. So they're bringing in, you know, directors and acting talent and operational talent uh, to create a movie. And then everybody goes back and does something else, right? And so I think that that's a, a, a plausible explanation of, you know, where we are today and applying these kinds of uh, expertise skills into uh, the world of software development. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's only going to get more interesting with, uh, you know, more and more work happening remotely um, and uh, with the current macroeconomic environment. Um, speaking of which, um, what do you see happening uh, for fractionals in the next couple of quarters? What are the what what headwinds and what what's at our backs? Right. Well, and, and I think that that's a great point. When we look at 2023 as compared to 2022, uh, just even that one year is a huge difference. And of course, 2022 was radically different from 2020, just two years prior, right? So we are in the washing machine of, uh, you know, change events that are imposed on all of uh, the growth organizations. So 
Uh, we've heard a rising tide lifts all ships. Well, a, a low tide lowers all ships, right? And so as we're looking at the second half of this year, uh, what's imperative is that we are taking uh, the learnings that we've had from the change event from Q3 of 2022, right? When we saw sales cycles beginning to extend further out, uh, we've seen a decrease in win rates that were, you know, in the upper to mid 20%, uh, now below uh, 20% now, uh, as published while winning by design and, and bet sites. And the impact that this is having is, you know, restated is we're winning one out of five opportunities that we have in our pipeline. And I would say, you know, last year I might have said, well, maybe that's because, you know, we did a poor job of targeting and, you know, maybe four of those customers were just not great targets. This year, I think that there may be uh, some additional information that's hidden in there. And it's worthwhile, I'll say, Max, to look into your closed loss just in the, just in this year. So since January of 2023 because that is most representative of what's going to uh, be the behavior in the second half of the year, right? So we may not want to go too far back into 2022 just because our economic conditions are not aligned, right? First <laughs> half of this year, if if we've you know lost four out of the five opportunities that we've had in our pipeline, statistically speaking, I think it's super important to understand the reasons why uh, those were lost. Uh, too often I find that, you know, uh, salespeople are like, I really hated to lose that deal. I had nine months, you know, in that deal, but I can't really cry about it. I, I, I still have to go hit my quota. So it's like, you know, we almost uh, quickly roll off of the loss and, and start pursuing the new logo. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes it's just repeated again. And so we don't take the time and invest in understanding why did we, why did we lose that deal? Why did that end up as a Close loss because the outputs that come from that uh, would inform product if we were missing a feature or a capability. Uh, super important for product to know that, right? Um, if it was pricing or packaging, you know, a lot of times we just hear, oh, the competition won, it was price. Well, you know, it's important for us to understand that and kind of get underneath that a little bit because it's possible that we could repackage that solution in a way that price is not as much of the deciding factor. It's more about the impact that we can deliver. And that would go back to our sales enablement and helping our sales team finish the rest of this year uh, you know, in a better way than they, they uh, performed in the first half of this year uh, by having the benefit of understanding how to improve the messaging. Uh, and that would include pricing packaging there. And it may have you know, ultimately been one of our first suspicions is we were just so eager to get additional pipeline in that we said uh, yes to some opportunities that really just weren't a good fit for us at this time. So uh, statistically, we weren't going to uh, win those opportunities anyway. But yet, we invested the selling time and the uh, and the management of that opportunity in the first half of the year to uh, to walk away with nothing. So I feel like you know we've already paid the bill. In, uh, in the closed loss, we should be able to take away some insights and learnings from that so we don't have to pay the bill again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so we see, we see um, 
the the sales cycle extending, um, the win rate declining, those things on their own are increasing CAC because you're using more sales time per per lead and you're getting uh, you know one you're getting less revenue uh, to spread across that. Um, and uh, then on the other side of this, um, I, I just saw a fund closed with one-tenth, a growth fund closed with one-tenth of the capital committed that they were trying to raise. Um, what does this mean in terms of, of posture um, for these clients? Where is their focus you know, shifting from and where is it going to? Yeah, so I would say that uh, given that particular situation that we, um, can you guys come back in just a little bit? I'm sorry. I'm running. Thank you. Sure. Um, so I would say in that particular situation, there's a lot of dry powder that is on the sidelines. The, uh, the attributes for deploying that capital have significantly changed. Right. Um, and so if we don't have the strongest unit economics to present, we don't have a very good, strong uh, case for describing our market, meaning ICP and the personas that we're pursuing. Uh, those are red flags for investors. It's, you know, th there's, there's not a scalable opportunity here. So you're right. There's, uh, there's a ton of capital out here that's waiting to be deployed. And I think what founders and CEOs are doing this year is making sure that they've got their financial house in order, the narrative that supports the growth. Uh, whereas maybe perhaps two, even as early as two years ago, it was a matter of this is a great idea. It's a large TAM. We've got a seasoned executive team to go pursue that business. You know, there was there was a abundance of capital to go make that happen, right? Uh, and then today, you know, we're just really seeing where the uh, investors are spending more time on due diligence, you know, to vet those candidates who do have their financial narrative uh, in order and have demonstrated uh, at least the beginnings of a revenue engine where they can effectively attract attention, convert that attention into contract and make the impact uh, that was proposed to the client uh, in the and then in retention, right? So we're making the impact we said we would, uh, and we retain that customer with the uh, possibility of uh, expanding uh, the usage and expanding revenue. So, so those are the themes, and and uh, my opinion that are paramount for us to think of uh, when we're thinking of beyond next quarter, beyond next year. It's you know, how does this play into um, getting our financial narrative in order so that we can support uh, the growth? I want to make sure I answered your question there. I felt like I bounced around a little bit. Um, I, I, I think that you did. Um, and uh, I think it it, uh, it kind of plays into uh, like David Sachs model, the, the burn multiple uh, type concept. Um, well, um, thank you so much for um, all of your insights. Um, and that's like such a critical story to build, right? It's a different story than, than companies were having to tell last year. And it's a different story from the one that they were trying to tell two years ago. 
Um, and it's important that they get all the numbers right and, and you know, uh, build everything uh, to that new story, which is, you know, more about, you know, functional unit economics it, uh, and not just uh, acquiring customers to acquire them. Um, so uh, thank you so much for, for joining me, John. Um, for anybody who wants to get in touch with you, where's the best place for them to find you? So they could find me on LinkedIn pretty easily. Uh, I'm known as the SaaS CRA com. So I look forward to helping those. And, you know, my big passion here is that, you know, we on LinkedIn. Uh, and then also my direct email address is first initial last name, Jay Williams at sun, like the bright thing in the sky, business group. Well, thank you so much, John, and uh, to everybody, thank you for listening.